0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.
1: Science Notes A programme on Otago Access Radio brought to you by the Science News and Promotion Group at the University of Otago. Join me, Dave McMoran, as I chat with graduate science students. We'll find out about their research, why they do science at all, and what music they enjoy. Science Notes Thursdays from 6.30 till 7pm Only on Otago Access Radio. Well, good evening, and welcome to Science Notes again for another week. My name's Dave McMorrin. This week, students are all away on holiday, and so it's just me. And so I'm going to talk to you about something a little bit different to what we've done in the past, um, but something which I'm hoping will be the start of a new series of programs. But first, a piece of music. Listen to Science Notes on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM. There is, in some minds, an apparent separation of science into applied science and pure science. Pure science is seen as being more noble, in that it is the science for science's sake, seeking out the truth from nature so as to understand it in some objective way. Whereas applied science is more utilitarian, a tool for the betterment of society, but only of value if it can make our lives easier or make its pursuance money. I'm not sure that there really is such a distinction. I'm not sure that science is ever pursued in isolation of the world in which it is done. That those doing the science are somehow independent from the communities in which they live. Historically, the ability of someone to explore a chemical reaction, for example, depends on their access to the chemicals and the equipment, which in turn depends on their financial status, their geographical location, and also on those who could appreciate the work, provide patronage for it, and promote it. Today, the patronage is provided by businesses, by universities, and by funding agencies, and the promotion is the job of the academic journals conference presentations and, ideally, coverage in the mass media, but in the past this role often fell to individuals who possessed both the appreciation of the value of the science and its ability to both enrich us intellectually and as a society. In this new occasional series of programs I would like to look at some examples of this interrelationship between the science the scientist, and the society in which they worked, and which provided the impetus for the work that they carried out. Tonight's story starts with an English chemist named Edmund Davy. In August of 1836, he reported the results of an experiment attempting to produce pure metallic potassium. He heated a mixture of potassium hydrogen tartrate, with charcoal powder, which was a form of carbon. But rather than obtaining a shiny silver metal, as he had hoped, he instead got a dark, chalky solid. The solid, he worked out, contained molecules which each contained one potassium atom and two carbon atoms, a new compound, which Davy called carburet of potassium, and which is now called potassium carbide. When he then set about exploring the properties of this new compound, he found that it very vigorously released a gas when it was mixed with water, and his studies on the gas showed that it was also something new. He then worked out that the molecules of the gas, which he called bicarburate of hydrogen, each contained two two atoms of hydrogen and two atoms of carbon. And while the gas was quite stable, it it was also very flammable and burned in air with a very bright white flame. Davy commented that, from the brilliancy with which the new gas burns in contact with the atmosphere, the author thinks that it is admirably adapted for producing artificial light, if it can be procured at a cheap rate. The new gas was then ignored, until, starting in about 1850, the French chemist Pierre Berthelot started exploring alternative ways to produce it, and gave it the name by which we now know it – acetylene. By the 1860s, he had found a way to produce acetylene on a larger scale than Davy was able to, but still not in sufficient quantity for its potential as a lighting source to be realised. And then in 1862, the German chemist Friedrich Wöhler also reported the preparation of calcium carbide, the calcium cousin of Davy's potassium carbide. And he found that just like the potassium carbide, calcium carbide reacted with water to produce acetylene. But again, it could only be formed in small amounts. The person who did discover a way to commercially produce acetylene was the Canadian chemist and inventor Thomas Wilson. After moving to New York in 1887 and working as a mechanical and electrical engineer, he secured the US rights for use of the newly invented electric arc furnace for smelting ore. The first operational example of this type of furnace, which generates heat, by creating an electric arc between two electrodes, was demonstrated in 1888 in Scotland and patented in 1889. In 1890, Wilson and his partner James Moorhead set up a factory in Spray, North Carolina, where they planned to use the arc furnace technology to produce pure aluminium. They hoped that, in the intense heat of the furnace, aluminium ore could be converted into metallic aluminium by reacting with the carbon that the electrodes were made of, in a process similar to that which had been used to smelt iron for centuries. When this proved unsuccessful, they then thought to add calcium to the mixture in the hope that it would facilitate the conversion of the reaction of the aluminium ore. In May of 1892, they added calcium oxide, or lime, which itself could be readily made from limestone, into the furnace to turn it into the metallic calcium they needed. But instead of making calcium, they produced a grey solid, which, when they went to dispose of it, reacted vigorously with water to produce a gas. Wilson and Moorhead had made calcium carbide. Even though there was no obvious commercial use for the calcium carbide, Wilson patented the process for converting lime into calcium carbide in 1893. He then went back to trying to make aluminium, but it soon became clear that the electric arc furnace was not going to be the way to do so. Modern aluminium production also relies on electricity, but the way that it is used is very different to what Wilson and Moorhead were trying. So they returned to their calcium carbide that they had stumbled upon a way to produce on a large scale. But despite their best efforts, Wilson and Moorhead couldn't find anyone who who saw the potential in their discovery, so they set about promoting uses for calcium carbide and the acetylene it could produce themselves. And following Davy's recommendation, they started with the use of acetylene for lighting. Compared to the oil gas that was used for household lighting at the time, the flame from the acetylene was 10 to 12 times brighter, and also much whiter than the flame from oil gas. It was regularly described as being just like sunlight. But eventually they had some success. and their first sale, one tonne of calcium carbide was made in January of 1894. And soon after that, A new company, the Electro-Gas Company, bought the patents for the use of carbide and acetylene for lighting. And they, in turn, began to sell the carbide manufacturing rights worldwide. Just a few months later, in October of 1895, a photographer from Nelson named William Tyree sailed to England to see the new acetylene lighting for himself. Tyree had been born in London in 1855 and had immigrated to New Zealand with his parents and three of his siblings in 1871. William Senior was a bootmaker, but his brother James, William Junior's uncle, was a noted photographer who had exhibited daguerreotypes, as the early photographs were called, at the Great Exhibition at the Crystal Palace in London in 1850. It was from his uncle that William learned the trade and, after spending time in his late teens at James's studio in Dunedin, William initially moved to Roxborough in central Otago and then to Nelson, setting up his own studio in Trafalgar Street in 1878. He became known for producing images on glass plates which were suitable for showing using a magic lantern the precursor for the modern slide projector but a key part of the magic lantern design was the oil was the light source and the news of the acetylene light which was so much brighter than the oil lamps or the limelight sources that were commonly used was of such interest that william sailed back to the other side of the world to see it for himself upon his return kyrie became something of an acetylene evangelist. He bought the New Zealand rights to the carbide and acetylene manufacturing, which he then zealously protected, and traveled the country promoting the benefits of acetylene lighting to anyone who would listen. He set up the New Zealand Acetylene Gas Company in 1895 and pushed for the building of a carbide production facility. As he pointed out, the key ingredients for such a factory, limestone, coal, and water for generating the electricity, were all abundant in New Zealand. Like Wilson, Tyree was also a backyard inventor, and he patented his own acetylene generator, which he called the perfection generator. This, like others on the market, was a simple enough contraption. It looked like a large steel drum, which had two internal compartments, one in the bottom for the calcium carbide, and one above this where the water went. By opening a valve, water could be dripped down onto the carbide in a controlled fashion. The resulting acetylene then travelled out through a tube, and then through a small nozzle where it could be lit by a flint and burned brightly at the centre of a suitably reflective curved surface. Turn off the water, the gas stopped flowing, and the light went out. Such generators could be very small, suitable for use as a miner's headlamp or a bicycle light, or much bigger, providing enough gas to light a house or even a street. He installed acetylene lighting in the home of his brother Alfred, a Christchurch city councillor, and petitioned the Nelson City Council to let him install acetylene gas street lighting in the city. He vigorously debated the merits of acetylene versus coal gas in the newspapers, but by and large, his efforts were in vain. He was importing carbide for use in his generators, but the storage of this became an issue for the local council, and he was told to remove it, because while acetylene was clearly a better lighting source than what was available at the time, it was also perceived as being dangerous. Perhaps because of how readily the carbide could be converted into acetylene, there were a number of instances of people trying to use home-built generators and coming to very unfortunate ends. There had also been efforts in Europe to produce and sell tanks of compressed acetylene in a similar way to how other gases were sold, but compressed acetylene turned out to be much less stable and again there were a number of unfortunate results. News of these caused much concern around the country, and, as is so often the case, the assurances from Tyree that things could be done differently and more safely if the science was properly understood and utilised, fell largely on deaf ears. In the end, Tyree gave up on his acetylene crusade and went back to photography. He eventually left Nelson and moved with his family to Sydney, in 1910. But by then, his dream of using acetylene to light up small towns in New Zealand had been realised. In 1902, a new company called the New Zealand Acetylene Gas Lighting Company Limited was formed in Dunedin. As its name suggests, its aim was to see acetylene lighting used in homes, in businesses, and as municipal lighting in small towns where the larger city gas systems could not profitably be set up. Within a short time, the company had offices in Christchurch, Wellington and Auckland. In 1906, the company installed generators and pipes at the small South Island town of Picton, making it the first first in New Zealand to have street lighting supplied by acetylene. This was soon followed by the small Canterbury towns of Kaiapoi and Geraldine. Small portable acetylene lights also became commonly used on bicycles, cars, and trains. Indeed, one of the earliest proponents of acetylene lighting in Dunedin was a Mr. Yunson, who was the general manager of the Dunedin Tramways Company. And its portability and brightness made acetylene lighting ideal for use in lighthouses. Although the acetylene was not in fact made from carbide on site, as transporting the carbide on small boats across across to the lighthouses might have been problematic, but it was in fact supplied in tanks dissolved in a solvent called acetone. But acetylene's days were always going to be numbered, as electric lighting slowly but surely became more available and more reliable. Indeed, even as Wilson was building his carbide factory, Thomas Edison was producing his first electric light bulbs. Perhaps the beginning of the end for acetylene in New Zealand was when an explosion at a general store in Upper Hutt killed eight people in 1914. In the months-long inquiry that resulted, which was covered in great detail by newspapers across the country, acetylene was blamed for the explosion. And even though, in the end, it was determined that it was in fact gelignite and not acetylene, which was to blame, electric lighting soon became the favoured means of domestic domestic lighting, where there was no access to reticulated gas. But even even though acetylene lighting soon became a thing of the past, acetylene itself remained, and still is, an important chemical. Because almost as early as its bright flame was recognized as a a potential light source, the heat of its flame, when mixed with oxygen, gas, was also recognized for its potential for the welding and cutting of steel. Compared to the flame of a Bunsen burner, which burns at about 1,900 degrees Celsius, the flame of an acetylene-oxygen mixture burns at 3,000 degrees Celsius. The first oxyacetylene welding apparatus was developed in France in 1901 and it went on to revolutionise the manufacture and recycling of iron parts. For example, a system first used in 1907 in the Navy Yard in Brooklyn in the US meant that the process of cutting portholes through the 3 inch armour plating used for making the Navy ships was transformed from a two-week job for five men to a 30-minute job for one. The ready availability of acetylene also led chemists to explore how it could be used to make other things. Among the results of this work were artificial rubber, anesthetics, and, almost 100 years later, the electrically conducting plastics that form the heart of your phone, And your computer screens. But these stories will have to wait for another day. everyone for listening and i'll just remind you that you can listen to the show again next week at the same time and then at your leisure is a podcast from the otago access radio website which is oar.org.nz science notes brought to you by the science news and promotion group at the university of otago
0: this podcast was produced by orfm dunedin with support from new zealand on the air